So, so we've started this um, Bible class on what we're calling Foundations of Faith. And it's based on a, a book that we got from Apologetics Press, or not Apologetics Press, um, Gospel Advocate, Nashville, Gospel Advocate. A um, whole lot of good stuff in there. We're doing it in bite-sized chunks because there's a lot. Um, but the first section is Foundations of Faith. And so last week I started this lesson that I'm calling The Reality of God. Uh, which is based on one of the first lessons in that book as well. So this morning will be part two. Okay, so a little bit of review. Uh, last week we started talking about the reality of God. I introduced kind of what I was talking about and where I wanted to go. Um, we broke it down into two halves. We're talking about God's existence and God's identity. Okay, Talking about God being real. There's a few different components of that, the, the literal existence of God, whether God exists, but also later on, hopefully next week, I want to get into identifying God, because as I'll kind of wrap up this morning, um, going through the existence of God arguments does not get you all the way there. Uh, so then we started going over the idea of the existence of God and, and how we're going to go about this. Uh, my main point there was we wanted to look at evidence, Okay. Because if you're speaking with someone who is struggling with God, God's existence, you're going to have a difficult time, depending on the person, teaching them exclusively from the Bible. And so these are some supplemental arguments um, based on observations in nature, based on you know, just good old-fashioned logic to help build a framework so that someone could be more accepting of Scripture, of God's existence, because God's God's existence gives the Bible its authority. If you don't accept God, then you're not going to accept the Bible, right? Because the basis for authority is no longer there. So again, foundations of faith. We're building foundations. Uh, So we went over the first argument that I wanted to share, which is often called the cosmological argument. Basically, it's the idea of the first cause, God being that first cause, God being an uncaused cause, we, we kind of went over that objection and why that objection falls flat. Um, but yeah, we, we talked about God being creator, God being eternal, and how nature can't create or explain itself. All right, so now I'll continue. We'll be starting um, near the top of the back of the handout. But first, let's talk about Nazis. All right, so if you weren't awake, I hope you're awake now. Um, Is anyone familiar with the Nuremberg trials? Anybody? Doesn't sound like it. Maybe a couple nods? Okay. So the Nuremberg trials happened after World War II. Uh, After the fighting had finished, uh, there was to be a reckoning for what the Nazis did during World War II, right? I mean, I don't even really need to go into details. I think everyone knows, but... Murder, imprisonment, experimentation on people, all sorts of horrible, horrible, horrible things. And so there were trials that were done, essentially convicting these, these uh, members of, of Hitler's government, his regime, of the crimes they committed. Uh, but there was an issue. Of course, you know, you're in a court, so you're going to have arguments back and forth as to whether there's a guilty or not guilty verdict. So the issue was brought up that what crime 
were these Nazis guilty of? Okay, they were German. Under German law, they were following their dictator, right? He told them what to do, they followed his orders, okay? So the Nazis weren't breaking any German laws, and the Nazis weren't American, so they weren't breaking any American laws. They weren't breaking British laws or Russian laws. So what laws did they break? Why are they on trial for a crime? Because there's no legal document that dictates what the Germans did outside of their own law, right? They're subject to their nation's laws. So um, the chief prosecutor of the Nuremberg trials, who was a Supreme Court justice in the United States, Robert Jackson, um, along with a couple others on the prosecution team, essentially came to this conclusion that there's a higher law that was violated, that something was done that was so monstrous that it did not, it, it went above national boundaries, right? It went above national laws. It was a violation against humanity itself. And so there's this appeal to a higher law than what, is a, what exists in secular governments, okay? And so the question that I want to pose now, going into the second argument, is what's the basis for that higher law, okay? Because we see evidence for a belief in a higher good in practically every mentally competent person in the world, regardless of their values and their beliefs, some things stay constant. So I want to introduce the idea of objective and subjective morality. Does anybody, would anyone like to define objective versus subjective? Anyone want to show off to the class? Okay. Okay. Anyone else? No? Objective doesn't show any bias, and subjective shows Okay, yeah. So, so when we're talking about subject and objective, the, the words there, right? Object and subject. Subjective is like it depends on the subject. Like Sam was saying, and, and like uh, Mark mentioned. Um, it depends on who you're talking to, perhaps, whereas objective is separate and distinct from that. So here's an example. Um, am I currently on the planet Mars? This is not a trick question. <laughs> no, right? Let's all agree on that. Okay. That is objectively true. Okay? It does not matter how I feel about it. It doesn't matter what I think, it doesn't matter what you say, it doesn't matter what I say, I'm not on Mars. That is objective truth. Okay, um, now an example of subjective. Anybody like the word yonder? Over yonder? Where is yonder? Can someone measure out a yonder for me? Oh, there you go. Um, so you get the idea, here, there, yonder, there's no definition to it specifically, right? I can't point to you on a map and say this is where yonder is. Well, some people might try. But unless there's a city named yonder, um, I'm not going to be able to tell you where yonder is. Yonder is subjective based on the person that's using it and the situation they're using it in, okay? If I say over there, I could mean in the foyer or I could mean in that pew. That is subjective to what I'm thinking at the time 
and the context of our conversation, okay? So that's subjective. It depends on the subject. Objective means it doesn't care. It's either that or it's not. So the question of objective morality and subjective morality is, does morality depend on who is discussing the question at hand? Does good and bad, right or wrong, depend on one's feelings, on the situation? Do I have, can I have a different definition of good or bad or right and wrong than you can, and we're both fine? If right and wrong is objective, that means that this is wrong whether you want it to be or not, and whether you like it or not, this is wrong or right. And so what we saw in the Nuremberg trials is they were appealing to an objective standard. Regardless of which country you were from, regardless of what your law said or who your leader was, you did something wrong, okay? That's objective. That's the idea. Subjective is like, oh, well, it was German law, it was fine. Objective is, no, there's something bigger than that, and it's wrong, period. So um, the argument, the moral argument that I'm introducing here, the second argument for the existence of God, goes like this. If God did not exist, if there were no God, then objective morals would not exist because there would be no higher standard to attain to. If it was just evolutionary processes, then I'll evolve my morals and you evolve your morals and nature will sort it out later. Uh, So the second part of the argument is that objective morals do exist. These are your two premises for your argument. We went over this a little bit last week. If If the first premise is true and the second premise is true, then the conclusion, therefore God exists, has to be true. If I, if I show the first two premises, premises are true, then my conclusion has to be true. That's the whole point of constructing a logical argument. So the argument concerns objective versus subjective morality. Um, nature is not able to explain right and wrong. Nature doesn't concern itself with right and wrong. If you go out and you just look around nature and you see the way animals behave, you don't see right and wrong. You see animals killing other animals. You see, uh, I guess a lot of you guys are farmers. You see animals do things to other animals whether they want it to be done or not, right? If you have a farming background, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Animals do things, and they do them because they're animals, right? There is no moral consideration as to whether I should do this because it's right or wrong. You can train animals to do things that you consider right or wrong, but there's a difference there between them understanding an absolute moral objective truth and you training them to observe uh, that truth. Um, So objective morality uh, versus subject morality. Evolution has no use for morality. Natural processes have no use for morality. Um, I've got this book that I want to read. I thought it was a, a good quote. Uh, okay. Uh, let's see. Okay, so suppose that humans were just like animals. In, in, like, give me, give me a, a minute to kind of imagine a different reality, that we were just acting as animals did. Um, suppose that you killed another person and took their things and went on with your life. So the, the quote here in this book, uh, such actions, though injurious to their victims, obviously, are no more unjust or immoral 
than they would be if done by one animal to another. A hawk that seizes a fish from the sea kills it, but it doesn't murder it. And another hawk that seizes the fish from the talons of the first hawk takes it, but it does not steal it. For none of these things is forbidden in nature. And exactly the same considerations apply to the people we're imagining. If we imagine people being under the same type of moral standard as in nature, then you do whatever you want, right? Because nature doesn't care. Evolution doesn't care. Uh, let's see. Because of this, atheists have no use for morality either. Now, they may not think that way, but if you subscribe to a naturalistic worldview, then you have no explanation for why right or wrong even matters. But a quick conversation with anyone, including atheists, reveals that some things are always wrong. Depend, uh, independent of your belief system. Um, and I want to point out, sometimes you see an objection to this that's not entirely what we're talking about. Um, it kind of misconstrues the, the claim. Let's go to Romans uh, 2, chapter 14 and 15. Romans 2, 14 and 15. Uh, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. This is an excerpt from Romans. Paul's writing here. He's talking about instances where Gentiles not knowing or having the law did the right thing because they knew it was the right thing. You see that instinctively? They knew it, even if they didn't have the law to tell them to do it. That's kind of what we're talking about. Some people will say, well, atheists can be good and decent people in everyday life. And we're not disputing that. I can, I can observe, I mean, I, I have people that I know at work who are atheists, and as far as I know, they seem to be decent people. So we're not claiming that you have to believe in God to be a decent person. What we're claiming is if you don't believe in God, you have no reason to be a decent person. Okay? That's the difference. We're not claiming that you have to believe in God to obey the law or to not murder somebody. But we're saying if you don't believe in God, then there's a reason. There's nothing keeping you back other than you don't want to break the law and get in trouble. But again, that's just because the government says so because a lot of people got together and decided to say it. There's no better reason no moral reason keeping you from doing whatever you want. Um, so yeah, if you, if, you, if you talk to somebody, pretty much anybody, and you go to the extremes, you talk about the things that happened in Nazi Germany, you talk about um, um, child abuse, things like that, you are going to get, again, competent, mentally competent adults are going to generally agree Yes, these things are wrong in all circumstances, regardless of your culture, your belief system, or your background. Because that's true, because there seems to be an instinctive feeling of right and wrong, as we see in the scripture, even with those who don't have the law, that indicates that there is an objective moral standard that all of us share. Does that, does that make sense? It's not as if all of this is just made up for our own good and we follow it and other people don't have to. People know this whether they follow the Bible or not. And the existence of those moral absolutes, the existence of right and wrong, points to a God from which right and wrong derives. Because if God doesn't exist, then it doesn't matter. Uh, one thing I want to mention also, 
um, is sometimes a, a savvy uh, person who is trying to, you know, not accept God might come up, up, come back with a particular dilemma that goes all the way back to, I believe, ancient Greece. Um, the question is, okay, is something good because God wants it to be good, or God says to do it because it's already good? And I, I may not have worded that very well. The idea is either either something is good because God wants it to be, or God wants things to be because they're good. And the, the issue there is you're caught in a dilemma because either that means that God arbitrarily decides what is good and what is not, and if God changed his mind tomorrow, he could decide that things that are wrong, we know, would be good, and then everything would change. Or, if good exists outside of God, then that betrays the definition of God being the standard of good, right? If, if, if love is good, and so God decided, okay, since love is good, I'm going to tell people to love each other, that means that good exists above God, right? So the, the issue with that dilemma, all, all you really have to consider is you're being presented with two options, but that doesn't mean that there's only two options there are. And so the best explanation I've seen, I think it makes a whole lot of sense, is not that, it's not that God decides what is good, and it's not that good exists outside of God, and he just chooses, what, chooses it based on that, but that we're talking about the definition of God himself, right? Good is part of God's being. It's not that good exists outside of him. It's not that he chooses it arbitrarily. It's God's nature. Good is consistent with God's nature, so good comes from God's nature, and therefore it doesn't change because God doesn't change. So I might have butchered that a little bit, but if you, if you have questions on that, I can, I can kind of talk with you later. Um, and we can, I can try to explain it in a little more detail, maybe do a little more study and make sure I can phrase it better. Um, but it is sometimes a, a, an objection that comes up that's worth uh, familiarizing yourself with. They use the example of love. What is God? God is love. God is love. Right. Yeah, that's, that's how you cut through the dilemma, right? Because you're, you're being given two problematic choices. But when you understand that it is not, it's God's nature, not God's choice, it is part of who he is, that's the third option that you're not being presented. So that's how you cut through that dilemma. <laughs> yeah, there's that too. I can relate. I like to argue sometimes too. Okay. Um, so I'm going to move into the third argument. And this is the third of the, the main three that I wanted to present. So the third argument is called the teleological argument, which is a $5 word basically to say argument from design. Okay. So if you've heard about the phrase intelligent design, this is what we're talking about now. The, the argument of the existence of God based on the design that we see in the world around us, okay? Um, and that takes several forms. Uh, it could be discussed as uh, fine-tuning. It could be looking at um, DNA in, in life and, and seeing how intricate it is. Um, there's a whole lot of different ways to approach design because it's everywhere. It's all around us in nature. So the way the argument goes is, uh, first of all, first premise, 
uh, the fine-tuning of the universe is due either to physical necessity, chance, or design. So you have three options. Uh, physical necessity just means that like it, ex it happens because it had to happen that way. And I'll just real quick on that one, the problem is when you get into that discussion and try trying to understand why, there's no reason why. If something is necessary, there needs to be a reason for why it's necessary. So if you can't show why necessity is a thing, then it doesn't stand for the argument. So we're not really going to spend a whole lot of time on the necessity part. Um, otherwise, you have random chance, which is what you would get in a naturalistic worldview, or design, which is what you see from God. Uh, premise two, the fine-tuning of the universe is not due to physical necessity or chance. So that's the point where you address those other two options and you prove that they're not viable alternatives. Therefore, the fine-tuning of the universe is due to design. It's the only one left um, that's defensible. So this argument is based on the evidence of fine-tuning and design that we see in nature. Uh, for example, natural physical constants, which I'll get to in a minute, uh, the human body, uh, the information stored in DNA. You look at the animals in the world around you, you look at the world around you, and you see things that are so specific and that are so sensitive to change that, and you, you pile all those things together, you have to either explain how it all happened randomly at the same time, in the right order, just the right way, or that it was arranged that way by someone. So the question becomes, what is more likely? Because that's all we're really looking for, is which, what's the best conclusion here? That this all happened by chance, or that it was done purposely through design? Uh, so cosmic fine-tuning, um, again, fancy words that people use in books, but the idea is, in nature, there's a lot of math. <laughs> There's a lot of math going on in nature. Um, if you've ever taken a, a high school physics class, you've probably had to deal with some of these numbers, like gravity, for example. Gravity has a specific number that is used to uh, understand how we don't float into space. Um, there's a specific number that is tied to the atmosphere of the Earth. There's a different number for the atmosphere of Mars, and that dictates how gravity works. So, if you took that value for gravity and you changed it, okay, if it wasn't what it is now and has been, if you made gravity stronger, we'd all get squished and die. If you made gravity weaker, we'd all float into space, okay? Um, some other examples. Uh, the, the position of the Earth relative to the Sun, right? The Earth orbits around the Sun at a certain distance. It kind of, it's not a perfect circle, so it kind of gets warmer and colder, right? Um, it makes it circle around. You see more Sun sometimes of the year, less Sun other times of the year. If you scooch the Earth a little too close to the Sun, a little more closer than it is now, we all burn up and die. If you move the Earth a little bit further away from the Sun, we all freeze to death, okay? Um... Another example, the moon, right? So the moon influences the tides on Earth. You know, the tides come in, tides go out. The moon influences when the tide comes in and how far it comes in or out. Let's change where the moon is a little bit relative to Earth. Well, all of a sudden we flooded the world because the tides come in too much and we're all underwater. Let's move the moon a little bit the other way. All the water recedes and now the oceans are much more emptier than they are now. 
So imagine those types of problems, and now imagine dozens and dozens and dozens of those, some of them that are more, a little more complicated than I even want to deal with, but all that stuff has to be right. And all it is, it has to be right. It has to be very precisely right. Very, very, very sensitive to even the smallest change. And if any of those aren't exactly what they are right now, none of us can live. Life is not possible in the universe. And so, um, I've got a, if anyone is interested in more reading, I've got a really good book from an astrophysicist who, who goes through this type of stuff in, in more detail. You can see the numbers, and he, he has a table that explains like 30-something different circumstances like I just explained to you. But it's electromagnetism, the way atoms work, um, all of these things, if not all of them, if, if any of them is not exactly what it is right now, life cannot exist in the universe. So, either that all happened by chance, randomly, in a perfect order for things to get where they are now, or someone had to set it that way. And that's kind of the essence of this argument, is how do you explain all of this coming together just right? Chris, yes. The moon. The moon. It's not just the tides. Right. If, if we didn't have the moon, all that water would be stagnant. Yes. Right. Yeah, I mean, when you're standing on the beach and you're seeing the waves come in and out, it's not just there because it's pretty, right? That's a natural process that keeps the ecosystem going. Um, Similar like the water cycle, right? If the water cycle got messed up somehow, then guess what? Either plants are dying or, again, we're flooded, you know? Um, but yeah, yes? You know, we probably, me have been to these aquariums, Chattanooga, Atlanta, or whatever. Yeah, or you, you think about all the technology there okay, to keep those aquariums going. Right. And to keep the animals alive. Anything goes slightly wrong with that stuff, boy, you know, animals die. And all the learning and the precise uh, technology and everything else it took to get that. Yeah, and if you ever owned an right, if you ever owned an aquarium at home, you know how finicky that can be. The fish have to get along; it has to be cleaned. All this kind of stuff has to be. You cannot let it run itself for too long, otherwise things go haywire. Right, and so imagine that on a cosmic scale. For the entire universe that you have to set it into place so that everything works for at least thousands of years, right? Yeah, no, it's, it's a very, very, for, from the engineering perspective, it's an extremely difficult design problem to try to make sure all this stuff works at the same time. Because if you ever get into, I mean, like, say you're building a house, right? And you got to make sure that, that this, I don't know, this wall is the right length and that has to intersect but then we have to make sure it holds this load. Imagine you have to balance all those things together. Now do it billions of times. 
And if any of it goes wrong, it all falls apart. It's kind of like a giant, one of those giant domino things that people do, right? And if one domino falls, the entire thing's out. Right, yeah, I mean, we can, we can imitate that creativity, and we do, often in life, to a small extent. But we don't have the power, we don't have the knowledge, I can't build a universe. Can you build a universe? No. So it has to be something higher, right? And that's kind of what we're pointing towards. Yeah, the, the later chapters of Job are a very good illustration of this particular problem, right? When God starts laying out, did you do this? Did you do that? Did you do this? All of that had to have been done, plus a whole lot of other things that aren't even mentioned in Job. But I think Job kind of sums up the situation that we're talking about, about designing a universe and bringing it into being and how difficult and complicated that is. Mm-hmm. Right, and, and that's, that's one of the interesting things, too, about, I mean, living on Earth, but just the idea of, of how nature works, because nature sustains itself, right? It, everything is reused and moved around as necessary, and the human body is the same way. I mean, your human body is very interesting in how it kind of runs itself. You know, I've got blood going all through my, my body at the moment, going down, going back up, and it just continually runs. For a while, eventually it'll run out. But it's, it's very interesting to imagine all of that. If you ever look into um, the amount of information that is stored within DNA, microscopic size, the amount of information in there, and compare it to the storage we have on computers these days, it's an interesting illustration of how much information is stuck in microscopic pieces of your body. And it's all crammed in there so, so elegantly. So I guess one verse I do want to add as I, I move on from this one. Um, Hebrews 3, verse 4. We read this last week, but I think it kind of sums up this particular topic very well. 
Uh, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And if you take that verse and you just substitute the word universe for house, you kind of see what we're talking about. That's the all things, right? Okay, I just got a couple minutes left. This is my last, well, basically my last slide. Um, there are more arguments than this. And so I just kind of want to invite you to do more study on your own because the idea is to kind of give an overview now. Uh, one, one that I've read about is the argument from intuition. This one kind of phases in and out in popularity. Uh, but the idea is, can you come up with something that's 100% original that is never, it's not based on anything that already exists? For example, a unicorn doesn't exist. But a horse exists, and horns exist. And so I can come up with the idea of a unicorn because I already understand things that already exist to make it out of. The way the argument goes essentially is that simply based on the fact that we can conceive of a God existing points to the fact that a God must exist because otherwise we would have no concept of it, right? Um, so that, one's, that one gets a little philosophical, but it's an interesting read at least. Um, another one that I've seen before that I thought was really interesting is the argument of, of beauty in nature, right? So, so some will say that, okay, evolution has a reason for admiring beauty because animals need to reproduce. And so if an animal looks pretty, then the other animal will go after it, and they will have more animals that will continue to propagate the species. But what about a sunset? What evolutionary purpose is there to admiring a sunset? And you all know this. You've seen things that stir up emotions within you that have nothing to do with biological processes. This is just that sunset is beautiful, right? Or you go to the Grand Canyon and you stand on the edge and you look down and it's amazing. And you, maybe you get like some emotion of, of that experience. There's no evolutionary explanation for that, for admiring beauty in the world around us. And so I thought, I thought that was an interesting one too that I've seen before, that the fact that we can admire beauty means there must be something more than just natural processes. Um, and so knowledge is a tool, right? Knowledge can be used for good or bad, so it's on for us to use it responsibly and try to be able to defend God's existence based on our knowledge that we develop. And so I invite you guys to, to study this more. Um, on that note, there were some comments made last week, and there might be some interest in going into things like this in a little more detail. I thought about just continuing this week to go into more detail from last week. But, um, for one, that's not, the, that's not the sole purpose of this class, so I didn't want to get too far off on a detour. And also, I might actually want to take a little bit more time to wrap my head around some of the stuff. But, if you have interest in that, I thought about maybe I could do a mini-series sometime this fall for anyone who's interested, maybe in one of the back classrooms, and we can go into some, some heavy detail if that's what you'd like to do. Because there's some interesting stuff. It just it takes me a minute to kind of wrap my head around some of it, but it's, it's good stuff. Okay, last thing. So we've discussed the existence of God. As far as I'm concerned, we've sufficiently addressed the existence of God. However, who is this God that we've described? Well, this God is an ultimate cause, so the God is powerful. Uh, the God is objective, object, an objective moral standard, right? Objectively good, so we can get some values off of this God. And this God is obviously very creative. 
and powerful because of the universe we see around us. However, we haven't actually addressed God relative to Christianity. Okay, so we've established existence of a God, but we haven't yet established existence of the God, reality of the God. So next week we're going to talk about identity, and that's when we're going to narrow down to the God that we know. All right, thank you for your attention. I appreciate it.